yeah, there's this money. Well, why aren't they using it? Why aren't they? It's targeted for rural communities. Why aren't they using it? There's a lot of reasons why. Welcome to this edition of the Keynotes Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Chavez, the Communications Director for the Keystone Policy Center. Thank you for joining me today for the start of a three-episode series highlighting an issue that I think has become emblematic of the growing divide that we've seen in our country and how collaboration is serving as a vehicle to meet the needs of communities that often go overlooked. Since the COVID-19 pandemic hit in full force in America in 2020, federal and state lawmakers have dedicated billions of dollars and resources to address a host of issues, including, but not limited to, booing the economy, providing medical services such as vaccine clinics, feeding children and families living in poverty, and helping people find stable housing. Since the initial series of COVID stimulus programs like the Paycheck Protection Program, more commonly referred to as PPP loans, and first round of individual stimulus checks, there's been additional federal funding passed, such as the American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act, all of which dedicate funding throughout the country in numerous sectors, not just fighting COVID. That leaves state governments in charge of determining how and where to spend billions of dollars in an effective and equitable way, according to the parameters laid out by the federal government. So how does a state do that? Often it is done by soliciting grant proposals from communities, towns, and cities from across the state. State officials evaluate the proposals and determine which projects will receive a grant. But does that process serve every community fairly? For example, rural communities in Colorado have seen an impact from COVID in ways urban communities may not have and vice versa. Take the case of the dramatic shift and adoption of telework, which led to millions of Americans flooding into rural communities now that the need to be physically near an office was eliminated or reduced. Such a migration dramatically reduced the housing supply in these small communities, driving up costs and pricing out middle-income earners. And as we will hear in a moment, that painful shift in housing has had ripple effects not seen in larger communities. But then again, These are the types of circumstances that these new federal resources are intended to help address, right? All these rural communities need to do is put together a plan and submit a proposal to get funded. Well, it's not that simple. Stick with me as we talk to several leaders in the rural communities of Northwest Colorado to discuss the impact these federal and state funds could have on their communities, the challenges and hurdles they face in trying to make the case to access those resources, and the successes they created on their own that could be built upon with those new resources. Much has been made of the so-called urban-rural divide in our country, particularly over the last decade. But that description is perhaps an oversimplification that doesn't exactly inspire people from different regions and experiences to truly gain an understanding of another's perspective. Carrie Hauser is the president and CEO of Colorado Mountain College, which serves 11 different mountain communities in Colorado. She explains more. You know, one of the challenges, which is maybe broader than this conversation, is just sort of the lack of understanding. You know, I I lived on the Front Range for a very long time. I thought kind of I knew the rest of the state. You know, I visited a lot. I'm a mountain climber. I spent a lot of time sort of, you know, kind of in my free time. But until you live in in sort of rural parts of the state and um, kind of away from, you know, kind of the Front Range I-25 corridor, I don't know that I realized how out of sight, out of mind, you know, this, you know, these sort of 
rural communities are, unless you're visiting, you know, on a weekend or whatever, you come up, you know, you see I-70 and you see the log jams and the, and the, you know, the traffic jams and everybody comes up, enjoys it and then leaves. But sort of the day-to-day, you know, how do you experience, you know, these communities and, and what is it really like to live here, I think is very different. And a lot of the decisions are made in that sort of populated or urban corridor, right? They're made at the Capitol, they're made in Denver. You know, every once in a while they go, oh, we probably need somebody from Grand Junction, you know, to sit at the table. Well, I'm sorry, the Grand Junction is not the Western Slope. The Western Slope is 22 counties. It's enormous. It, you know, it, it ranges from anything from, you know, Durango to, you know, Grand Junction to Vail to Steamboat or whatever. I mean, there's just all this diversity as well. So I think it's one thing that we battle um, a lot and having lived here for, for almost nine years. Just like throughout the state, the communities of Northwest Colorado are not a monolith. The economy is spread among numerous sectors, but it is heavily reliant on certain sectors like agriculture, tourism, recreation, and the energy sector. And when one of those staple economic drivers is disrupted, it can have traumatic impact. That is what is happening right now, as one of the main suppliers of generational, high-paying jobs in the region is going away. Here is Shannon Scott, the Economic Development Manager for the City of Craig in Moffat County, to explain. As you probably know, we are in a major transition period right now for the city of Craig uh, in Moffat County. We are essentially losing our top industry uh, over the next three to five to eight years with the um, shuttering down of the uh, power plant and coal mines that support that power plant. So we're in a really interesting position right now as a community as we face um, those challenges. Uh, And then obviously, how do we replace um, the number of jobs that we're going to be losing? Uh, They're expected to, uh, we're expected to lose anywhere between four to 600 direct and indirect jobs um, as a a result of those um, mines and plants closing down and um, anywhere between 40 to 60% of our property tax base. So from an economic development perspective, we definitely have our work cut out for us. You know, to ensure that we do have a successful transition, uh, that that kind of takes the the form of many different um, many different things. So we're going to continue to focus on our existing industries, uh, help nurture them and grow them to ensure that they're successful through this transition, um, and then obviously recruit new industry to come into Craig um, that will help out some of those workers that will be transitioning out of out of the mines and the plants. COVID also took a toll on these communities, but the repercussions of that impact are perhaps felt in different ways compared to their more populated neighbors. As I mentioned earlier, rural communities saw a significant influx of people move into their communities because those individuals were no longer required to work in office settings in a city on a regular basis. On the one hand, a growing population is good, but it also drove up home prices and dramatically reduced supply in a state that has seen some of the steepest increases in home prices in the country. So you add a housing affordability crisis on top of the loss of a major employer, and you start to see challenges in keeping and developing a workforce for your community. Jen Fanning, the Executive Director for the Grand County Rural Health Network, shares some insight and how all of these challenges are also leading to an increase in the needs for behavior health. Most of our organizations, nonprofits, human services, um, for-profits, schools, medical industries, there are job openings, and it is because people we offer jobs to people outside of the community and they cannot find a place to live. You know, it's, you know, it's a problem when a doctor, one of the higher paying positions in our community can't afford housing 
What about the teachers? What about the paraprofessionals? What about the nonprofit workers? What about the people that work at the grocery stores, right? So that's impacting our workforce overall. It's impacting our organizational and community capacity, um, the economic development opportunities, right? We have to fix our housing. And then housing and behavioral health are extremely intertwined. Um, and we're seeing that in a lot of the work that we're doing. If people, once people have housing, that we're, ha- we're insecure in housing, a lot of their anxiety and behavioral health needs, they certainly don't disappear, right? But they dissipate and they're able to manage them better because they're not in that crisis. Um, and worrying, constantly worrying about, I got to find housing or I'm going to lose my job. Where are we going to move? We can't, you know, what are we going to do? We can't afford to move. It just escalates any kind of behavioral health issues. Tom Canning, a community banker who lives in Carbondale, Colorado, has lived in the region for over 40 years. He shares his perspective on why he thinks housing is the challenge that impacts everything. Housing affects it all. If, if you don't have an affordable, safe place to live, um, it's, it's really tough to keep a job, get a job, um, raise a family, uh, contribute to, to the community. And so, uh, and it, the market here has really radically changed in the last probably five or six years. Um, of course, being down Valley from Aspen, I, I, I would say at one time, the economy um, in the lower Valley here, there was a mining component, there was an agriculture component, uh, there was a little bit of, of tourism. Um, and then there was kind of the bedroom community for the resort up Valley. And that's shifted a lot. It's become much more um, bedroom community for uh, up Valley employees. The traffic driving up to Aspen every day is, is just absurd. Um, and the sky and the, the real estate prices have, have really taken off, which really makes it challenging. If, if we can't provide people with a, a reasonable place to live, then trying to develop a, an economy um, or work on workforce development is, is really kind of secondary. So I think that's a, the main issue that a lot of Western Colorado is faced with. Housing, economic development, workforce development, and behavior health, all issue presenting challenges in states and communities all across the country. But in rural communities like Northwest Colorado are intertwined in a way that is distinctive from cities. But like I mentioned before, there are resources available to address those challenges. In fact, a lot of resources. But getting access to that funding isn't so simple. Colorado State Senator Bob Rankin, whose district covers Garfield, Grand, Jackson, Moffitt, Rio Blanco, Route, and Summit counties in Northwest Colorado, explains. Well, I think we have to start with the the fact that this amount of money is unprecedented and overwhelming. Uh, we start off with the uh, COVID relief money, which is 1.9 and a billion, we're talking billions of dollars. And then the uh, American Rescue Plan dollars, uh, which are really the big, uh, the big set of grants and, and money rollout that's in progress right now. And then we have the Infrastructure Act, which we're starting to outline projects for. And now we have the so-called uh, Deficit Reduction or Recession Reduction Act. So there's a lot of money and a lot of different parts and pieces. So this all amounts to 50, 100 new grant programs, opportunities, or you have to write a grant proposal and get the money. And that's on top of what we already were doing. 
even before all this started, our Office of Economic Development, who I think does a tremendous job. If you go to their website, it says we have a plethora of programs. It said that before all of this happened. And, and I think that word means a whole bunch. So they start and stop at different times, have different requirements for grants. And we get this federal overlay. Well, it sounds good, except, you know, the, the federal money comes with a lot of requirements for reporting and auditing. And, and we, we, we stay worried that they will what's called claw back the money if we don't adhere to the exact. So, so this is a difficult process and problem. It, it really is overwhelming. And I use the words capacity. I don't think even our state government has the capacity to roll all of these things out. So we really have to do some planning here. And, and, and that capacity for planning and, and managing these programs does not exist. Capacity, or lack thereof, is perhaps one of the single greatest obstacles for these communities to overcome. And it was the concern everybody I spoke with highlighted. It's not that there is not expertise, leadership, or ability to apply for, manage, or meet reporting requirements for these grants. It's that there is not enough of those people with the distinct knowledge of the region to create the capacity required to apply for these grants. The many community and local government leaders are already dedicating all of their time to meet the basic needs they were hired or elected to do. Jen Fanning shares more. I think the biggest one that we're finding, um, and I've heard this thread, especially this year, um, across sectors locally and the region, is, you know, we might know the fundies there. We get the emails. We look at it. And we just simply don't even have the capacity to write the grant, period. Or if we had somebody else who could write the grant for us, we don't even have the time to explain what it would look like, right, on our end and how to really put that really deep information in that is required in order to get the grant. And that's just to write the grant. <laughs> and um, and let alone if we get the grant, then what's it going to look like to implement? Um, I hear all the time from people, will just hire a consultant. Great. Who's going to manage that consultant? Because I can't. I'm working an ex exorbitant amount of time anyways, like nobody should be working like that. Um, everybody's working that that much, right? We need to take care of ourselves um, in order to stay here for the long for the long haul. And um, again, I've already talked about housing is such a huge issue that we can't even hire <laughs> to fill these open positions. So all of those things are really important um, threads that go along with, yeah, there's money, but until and unless we fix the housing problem and our organizations, um, whatever it is, has more capacity, there's no way we're going to be able to implement this stuff. Or if we get a grant, then we're not doing it as well and we're able to implement it. We're not doing it as well as we want to or should be and doing it justice or um, other things might go by the wayside. I would venture to say that most of the listeners and followers of this podcast know just how much work is required to write and submit a grant proposal, whether it is a nonprofit grant or a grant from the government. It takes dedicated time and expertise to research, plan, develop, write, and submit. And as Jim mentions, it's not like hiring an outside consultant to help is all that effective, particularly because almost anyone who would have been hired would not have the intimate knowledge of the region to develop a comprehensive request. And then I reiterate, 
That's just to apply for the grant, let alone the management and reporting requirements that would come with it. Shannon Scott shares her thoughts on the capacity issue, particularly as it relates to applying for these incoming grant opportunities. We have capacity uh, challenges where we don't necessarily have a lot of staff that's dedicated to, say, grant writing specifically, where a metro area may have two or three or four just designated positions for writing grants and managing grants. And we don't have that. You know, we're trying to, to spread that around between everybody. And um, it makes it challenging when it comes to um, having to fight for funding and, and trying to compete uh, on, you know, against the larger communities. So that's certainly a challenge. Obviously, you know, from an economic development standpoint, uh, when it comes to recruiting companies and things like that, it's challenging that we're not just right next to an interstate. Transportation is uh, is a challenge as well. Um, so I think, like I said, the, the great thing about the local community is we understand um, our strengths and our assets, but we also understand our challenges. I hope you're starting to see the pattern. The challenges faced in these communities in the wake of COVID-19 are interconnected in a cycle that can seem never-ending. The local economy has seen dramatic disruption, requiring badly needed workforce and economic development. But the significant hike in housing prices is not only pricing out longtime residents, it makes it extremely difficult to recruit the new talent and expertise necessary to deploy that development. Take all of these issues together combined with the pandemic, and you see a dramatic increase in behavioral health needs. And the cycle continues on. But I want you to know that this is not a story of doom and gloom. In fact, it is a story about incredible resilience and imaginative ingenuity. These communities have come together to pool their resources and expertise to expand capacity and meet these challenges head on. There are several examples of collaboration that are empowering leaders to serve their communities in an exponential manner. And in our next episode, we'll highlight one of those initiatives. On the next episode of Keynotes, we'll tell you about the Northwest Regional Council. We're not aware of uh, this taking place anywhere else in the state of Colorado. We're encouraged that a number of uh, agency uh, affiliates, partners around the state, and we're helping leverage that by bringing people together to understand what is available. Keynotes is a production of the Keystone Policy Center, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based out of Keystone, Colorado, which for more than 45 years has empowered leaders to reach common higher ground. This episode has been made possible by support from El Pomar Foundation. You can access the resources developed from this project by using the link listed in the show notes. If you would like to offer feedback about the podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, please email me at mchavez at keystone.org. That's M-C-H-A-V-E-Z at keystone.org. I also encourage you to please consider making a donation to Keystone at keystone.org slash donate to help keep this podcast going.